Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, I'm joined by Tennille Herrera and Robert Fielden, two members of the One October Memorial Committee, to talk about plans for a permanent memorial for the Route 91 music festival shooting that happened four years ago, the largest mass shooting in U.S. history. After that, I sat down with Nevada State College President Darian Pollard to talk about vaccine mandates for college students and faculty, as well as budget shortfalls and more. At the end of the show, reporter Howard Stutz joins me for the second half of a story about the long and tumultuous history between the Culinary Union and Station Casinos. October 1st, 2017 was the deadliest mass shooting in American history. It happened in Las Vegas at the Route 91 Country Music Festival. The shooting left 60 dead and over 850 injured. Friday, October 1st, 2021 was the fourth anniversary of the shooting, and plans are underway to construct a permanent memorial in Las Vegas to honor the victims. I spoke with two members of the One October Memorial Committee, which has been tasked with leading the process of proposing a permanent memorial for the shooting. So I'm here with Robert Fielden and Tennille Pereira, who's part of the One October Memorial Committee. And by the time you hear this, it will be the anniversary of the One October shooting that happened in Las Vegas. What are your two roles in the committee? You were both appointed, right? Yes, we were both appointed. So I am also the director at the Vegas Strong Resiliency Center. And so I've been working with the survivors and the bereaved families in the community, impacted community as a whole. So my position within the different impacted groups, I think was why I was uh, chosen and appointed. I was eventually voted as the chair for the committee. I'm an architect and urban planner, and I've been here in Las Vegas practicing for, gosh, almost 60 years. And prior to serving on this committee, I was a member of the Clark County Advisory Committee for Public Art. So we're going to see a more permanent memorial at the site. Can you explain to me kind of what it's going to be? So we don't have a consensus yet. We've been really leading a process of community engagement. It's supposed to be reflective of what the impacted community wants, right? So it's not going to be what every single individual wants, but it's going to be kind of a collective project. And so we've been leading this process and really doing surveys and a lot of outreach, public meetings um, for people to come and make public comment, focus groups. So we have a lot of ideas developed and we have a location identified. So we have some of the pieces, but we still don't know like overall what this is going to look like. And I think a lot of that's going to be dependent upon the arts world and their creativity, because we don't want to hamper creativity. We want to put, here's what, you know, we've collected from the community, let those creative juices flow and let's see what it comes up with. Our important steps that are upcoming quickly are trying to bring all of this information into a compact, concise statement of what we want this project to be so that those who are interested in being involved in it uh, from the design standpoint in the future will have a clear understanding of the scope of work and also to, to make sure 
that it covers the breadth of the program requirements we want to have incorporated as a part of the overall memorial. And you guys conducted two surveys now of the community members kind of about what what they want to see. What, What has the response been to that? We haven't been real surprised in some of the, you know, results that have come out of the survey. We were surprised at the number of people that participated. That was, you know, a really good, strong number. But again, that was really important because we're trying to lead a process of engagement. But one of the first questions that we really had to ask was, where should this be located? Because that will impact so much of what we can or what that design would look like moving forward. And so, That was overwhelmingly the desire is to have it at the site where it happened. But then there were a whole number of ideas. So education and appealing to all ages. And and, and speaking of kind of some of the other memorials that have been around, you know, since the shooting, there's the, I think the one that comes to my mind is the healing garden, right? How, How is this going to kind of differ from some of those other ones that are maybe not as permanent? Each memorial, different types of memorials really serve a different purpose. You have those ones that crop up in the immediate aftermath because people just need somewhere to go and put a bouquet of flowers or what have you. And we had that crop up in Las Vegas at the Welcome to Las Vegas sign, right? We saw uh, that and then the the crosses that rolled into town were donated. And then you saw kind of an intermediate one crop up that is the Las Vegas Healing Garden which was a beautiful place. And what that provided was an opportunity for the community to come together and do something, right? You had all these people show up to volunteer. You had pallets of plants and materials show up and everyone just jumped in there and created this beautiful garden. And it's, you know, a little more controlled, a little more well thought out than just, you know, at the sign, but it still doesn't have those elements of a permanent memorial where a community has gotten to a place where they can say, okay, we've, we've healed from this and here's how we're going to remember it. And that's really what a permanent memorial is. It really is when the community has gotten to a place they've healed and they're going to memorialize that whole experience, not just, you know, the, the immediate impact of what it did, but the whole experience that the community has gone through over time. And to follow up on that, part of our our work to date has been, each of us have been assigned various memorials to research and study and see how they came about, find out about their successes, the difficulties they encountered along the way, and then how they're moving forward so that we can use each of those as templates to guide and assist us in developing this memorial. How do you hope that people and the community will interface with this memorial once it's created? Well, I personally hope that they will find this to be a place where they can go and find hope and peace and remember and honor. But, you know, most importantly to me, I would like them to be able to remember the light that came out of this event. And, you know, we've heard that repeated in the focus groups and the different public comments that we've had that people really want to focus on all of the amazing things also that came out of this. You know, one thing that I found really interesting in meeting with some of the survivors in the focus groups is they said, we don't want 
everything to be about the, the horrific part of the Route 91 Harvest Festival, because we were there to enjoy life, celebrate music and celebrate life. And we we don't want that to be just washed out. You know, so I for me, I, I want hope and peace and light to also, you know, come from the memorial. And the creative, the creative part of that, that is to enhance and uh, support what Tanil has talked about, how we go about bringing this together so that this memorial does memorialize the lives of those people, but it also enhances and embraces their lives and shows that life can go on and the contributions that these individuals have made are really guiding us uh, towards a better future and a safer future for all of America. Is there a timeline for the memorial when it'll be finished? No, we are working to move forward as quickly as we possibly can. But in doing that, not only do we have to bring the committee together to march forward, but we have to bring the public and all of those survivors' interests and other interests together so that we can come together with something that is extremely valuable. And that takes time. Do you guys have any advice for, for those in the community who have been less directly affected by by the shooting? Is there a way to approach the anniversary that might kind of help the community understand this a little bit better or, or address it a little bit better? I get this question a lot. Do I say something? Do I not say something? What do I do? And I say, always acknowledge it. It's important to remember. It's important to acknowledge that day, especially for those that were there, for those that lost a loved one. But it's also important to let that person kind of lead the way. Ask them, what would you like to do? Whatever it is that they need, support them in that need. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's important to remember that just because you weren't there or didn't lose a close family or friend doesn't mean that you weren't significantly impacted. And it's okay to have some of those feelings and emotions come back from that day. I would hope that with what we do, we can provide something for the community that that reaches out to them every day so that there is a remembrance of not only the event, but keep the people within this community to keep them advised and informed. And our job is to make life better and to enhance everyone's life throughout the community through this memorial. Every single one of our meetings are open meetings and we encourage and invite the public to come participate. But there's gonna be future public engagement and we want to encourage them to come participate in this process because it's healing. That was Tanil Pereira, director of the Vegas Strong Resiliency Center and chair of the One October Memorial Committee, and Dr. Robert Fielden, veteran architect and member of the committee. You can find out more about the memorial plans by going to clarkcountynv.com slash one October Memorial or by searching for One October Memorial on Facebook. You can find more resources and a community calendar for memorial events on vegasstrongrc.org. The story was written, reported, and edited by me, Joey Lovato.
and I am now joined by my wonderful co-host, Jacob Solis, to talk about higher education. Jacob, whenever we get to talk on the podcast, it's always a joy. Normally, it's just the intro and outro. How's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me, Joey, yeah. on this podcast that I help co-host. <laughs> yes, yes. And on International Podcast Day, nonetheless. We're recording this on Thursday. So, Jacob, you talked with Darian Pollard, the new president of Nevada State College. Tell me about that. Yeah, that's right. So uh, President Pollard, she's brand new to Nevada State as of a couple weeks ago. And what's interesting here is that Nevada State College is by far Nevada's newest college. It's a four-year institution, just like UNR or UNLV, except that it's not a research school. It's oriented toward getting people these four years degrees, especially in sort of certain areas that aren't, uh, we'll say, a focus of either UNR or UNLV or say there's some regional differences. So for instance, nursing is a huge program for Nevada State College. So it was founded in 2002 sort of to fill this gap that existed between community colleges and these research institutions. And since then, it's grown quite a bit. Got about 7,000 students as of uh, 2020, 2021. And that is basically double what it had five years ago, which is a little unheard of in higher ed. And so with that backdrop, obviously, is COVID. And so President Pollard comes into this job in the sort of middle of the COVID pandemic. She's following up President Bart Patterson, who has been president of Nevada State for 10 years, half of its entire existence. And so now she has the sort of monumental task of figuring out what comes next for this young institution that is in the middle of this massive growth spurt. Okay, Jacob. And so you just sat through a regents meeting after this interview was conducted. And a lot of it was about vaccine mandates and COVID as a whole as it pertains to higher education. That's right. And COVID really has been, I, I mean, look, COVID has disrupted a lot of things. I think that much is obvious to everyone, right? But in higher education, it's it's really disrupted every single aspect of, of how the entire institution runs. Every single cog in the machine got tweaked because of COVID. And when I talked to, to all the presidents so far this year, and I've been talking to presidents at every institution in Nevada, so I talked to President Pollard and I asked, what does successful COVID management look like at this stage in the pandemic? You have to be hypervigilant around communication, how to use multiple mediums, how to be very deliberate about various platforms, how to have consistency in your message so that people know that you said it here, you said it here, you said it here, and it's always the same message. The other thing for me, and this is a really hard thing, I think, for higher education, we've got to be able to hold two thoughts in our brains at the same time, that our students are both learners, but they're also consumers. So being very intentional about speaking to them as such, when they're in the classroom, they are learners and you are treating them with the academic promise and potential of what those faculty can do in that space. But when they're outside of that classroom, they're consumers. They have the ability to take their dollars someplace else if they want to. What is our value add? How are we talking about high impact practices and implementing them? How are we making sure that our campus feels welcoming to our students and also at the same time that they can feel safe? Those are things we have to hold in our head at the same time. We, sh we struggle with that notion because we say, oh, this isn't a business. They aren't consumers. None of us work here for free and none of our students go here for free. It's not a volunteer organization for anybody. So as a result of that, we've got to think about how we deliver on our mission in an evolving manner and not be so slow about it. So with the frame of COVID management as the big picture, I wanted to zoom in and ask very specifically about vaccines and vaccine mandates, because that's been a huge issue in Nevada and nationwide over exactly how colleges go about, you know, regulating COVID spread on campus. 
And specifically, Nevada students are now bound under a vaccine mandate by November 1st. If they want to enroll in in-person classes next spring, they have to prove that they have they are fully vaccinated. And so I asked the president, you know, is she worried that there are going to be students who will react negatively to that mandate and who may disenroll and pick up and go somewhere else? There may be an impact. I don't doubt that. What I will offer to you, though, is that this is the right thing to be done. I believe, and I believe this deeply, that part of our commitment as an institution is to be the space where there is safety, both for students who want to come here and explore different intellectual ideas, but also in terms of health and safety. And at the end of the day, our job is to work to craft the environment that we know is necessary for that. All of the compelling science indicates that vaccines are the way to lessen illness and help prevent death. I want you to have to be able to come on our campus and not have to think about the fact that I may be exposed here. Will we as an organization see some enrollment loss? Inevitably. Enrollment is contracting in higher education. Students have other options they can pursue. And if they want to go someplace else because they felt that this vaccine is an unwieldy mistress that's asked too much of them and they don't want to be a part of that, I want to support them in being where they think they can be and be safe at. But for the clear majority of our students, the majority of our employees, they want that type of environment. And it's our obligation and commitment to do that. Another big issue that higher education as a whole has really been facing is this significant budget cut that happened due to the economic fallout of the pandemic. Obviously, we got a bunch of federal money in the state as relief from that, but that hasn't really been sent out yet. So how has Nevada State College dealt with these significant budget cuts, Jacob? That's right. And I think with higher ed specifically, there were a bunch of rolling cuts in 2020 that were very severe. And then in 2021, as we look at this sort of long-term budget cycle, there were additional cuts. And that ended up being about $70 million for the entire system. And so for Nevada State, talking to the president there, she, she said that their big thing is growth. And what does sustainable growth look like? So I asked, how do these budget constraints affect the way that the institution approaches that growth? There is going to be a need to revisit the funding formula, I do believe, because right now the budget has really incented growth. It's built around outcomes and growth. And at some point, you move into a place where you have to also build capacity. And right now, Nevada State College has been, because we have been growing so fast, those resources have come to help us do that type of growth have been important. But when that growth slows, and you're still trying to build infrastructure, you've got to figure out a way in order to be able to say, hmm, there are capital needs. Want to keep our class sizes at a reasonable level. You want to be able to have robust support services. You want to tap into those communities that have been underserved or have been ignored. It's important for us to do that. In Nevada State College, should we also be thinking about how we're delivering our mission more broadly across the state of Nevada? Those are things that will require some level of investment. We don't want to create an environment where youth leave the state. We want them to stay here. So I think those things are important. None of us saw COVID coming. None of us knew a pandemic was going to change the very nature of the delivery of our mission, how we can even get to campus, let alone have people in classrooms. So we've got to be thinking a little bit more thoughtfully about what's a realistic representation of who we are and the numbers of students that we serve and how that fits into a funding formula that responds to that. 
All right, Jacob. And I guess just to wrap up, I wanted to talk about how Nevada State College is compared to other institutions like UNR and UNLV. Like you said, it's a much younger institution, it's a much smaller institution. But the problems that it's facing, are these problems that are being faced by community colleges as well as the big universities in the state? I mean, it really depends on the problem. I think Nevada State is in a very unique position in its age and who it's serving and how it serves them. I mean, there there isn't another institution like it. That's why it exists. But at the same time, like we've mentioned sort of throughout this interview, there are these universal problems, budgeting, faculty, morale, right? So certainly, in, uh, if I were to answer that question, Joey, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. <laughs> a, very, a very democratic answer, Jacob. Well, thank you so much thank for you. joining me on the podcast today to talk more about higher education. Thank you. Last week, I talked with reporter Howard Stutz about the long and tumultuous history between the Culinary Union and Station Casinos, owned by the billionaire family the Fertitas. Last week, we covered the personal history between the family and the union, one of the most powerful political forces in Southern Nevada, as well as a labor dispute in Las Vegas, and why Station Casinos doesn't want the union to get involved with their workforce. The Culinary Union has been in a dispute with Station's Casino over unionizing the property's workforce since about 2008. Station Casinos feels they offer better compensation and benefits, while the union feels like this is just an effort to prevent the workers from unionizing. Six of the seven properties owned by Station Casinos have voted in favor of unionizing, but the two sides have been stuck in a legal fight with no clear end in sight, especially as Station Casinos have recently sold one of their properties and have three more properties that have remained shuttered since the pandemic started. So now coming back to the conversation with Howard, I asked him about talking with labor law professors about the dispute between the Culinary Union and Station Casinos. Well, it's the way labor law is written. It favors, it doesn't favor management or or the union, it favors collective bargaining. Key is there's no hammer over either side to force a contract. So you can drag this on as long as you want. One side will sue, you know, right now, they're both suing each other and, and they're both filed claims against each other. They could try to get a contract. Station casinos may not you know, sit down and say, we're at an impasse. We can't come up with something. Go back and negotiate some more. So there, there, there isn't a clause or a hammer or, or a way to force a contract being settled. It just can drag on. And it's just how long does the union and management want to drag on this fight? Obviously, it's gone on a couple of decades. So yeah, they're willing to go on long, as long as it takes here. And, and and you mentioned collective bargaining. I, I, and for those who don't know, those, for those who aren't in the union world, when we're talking about getting a contract versus collective bargaining uh, versus unionizing, can you explain a little bit about what that is and how, what the differences are there? It's basically where you have, you sit across the table, you have management on one side, union representatives on the other. Usually it's the head of the union. And then they, they the employees have elected employee representatives to talk also to be part of that that bargaining. That's where you hammer out the contract, different clauses, the wages, benefits, what they're going to be. And that's how you hammer that. That's what collective bargaining. Collective bargaining basically means both sides give and take. Now, whether this has gone on, I don't know. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm not privy to it. So I don't know if, it's, if the give and take has actually gone on between the culinary and station casinos. And compared to like a contract, which is just this is the union contract that the, the casino has to follow. Yeah, the union has its wage scale that they want to try to put in for this. And it's and it basically when you have a big company like Station Casinos, these contracts, they try to negotiate for all the Station Casinos properties, one contract. Sometimes now you'll get a contract for different properties. The, the wages may differ in a smaller property or a bigger, depending on the size of the property and location and revenue stream, where they rank on in terms of 
the company's uh, bottom line. So you may get different contracts for different properties. And, and zooming out a little bit, talking about the culinary union, have they generally been seen as a positive force for workers uh, on the strip in, in Las Vegas? Obviously, when you think of unions, you think of pro-labor, you, these organizations that help them. Have, have they actually succeeded in doing that You know, in the places where they are active and working with contracts and casinos? We have to remember the culinary is probably, I guess, at least 60, maybe percent, maybe more Hispanic and new citizens or non-citizens even. So, you know, they're looking to get their green card or looking to get citizenship. They've run citizenship programs for their members. 60,000 strong. And you think of the people that the, the folks that work in, in that end, the hotels, hotel side of the business, they are seen as a force politically and socially. I mean, they've been very active in the past 18 months with the COVID-19, trying to support their workers, pushing for vaccine, for their workers to be vaccinated, members to be vaccinated, to go back to work. A lot of the workforce obviously was out of work for a while for the 78 days that the city was closed, you know, gaming was shut down. So they've been a force in that sense, but they're a political force. It's the union hall is a location every four years for mostly democratic presidential candidates to come in. 2008, the year Barack Obama won the presidency, it was a place to be for the democratic campaign. When there's not a democratic president, every democratic candidate that's running shows up. And, and we saw that in 2019 and 2020, they held town halls and pretty much every one of the major candidates all showed up and met with the union workers. And most of them then had the photo op to go out where the culinary was holding informational picket lines in front of the Palms Casino Resort in support of the unions. It's a very powerful symbol for labor is the culinary union here in Las Vegas. Yeah. I guess coming back into looking at their dispute with the Fertitas and with Stations Casino, is there an end game, right? Like you said, like they can basically kind of just stay in these labor disputes indefinitely, at least how labor laws are written right now. Have have they has there been any peace talks maybe between stations and the you know, it, the, the labor law academic folks that I talk with all said they, they just don't see an end. The end game is a contract or the union gives up. Well, this union doesn't give up. I mean, look at they struck for over almost seven years at the frontier. They've been at this going back to 2000 or, or, or longer. They don't give up. Station Casinos, which is an operating subsidiary of Red Rock Resorts, they've shown no inclination to have a contract. So they believe they're taking care of their workers just fine. So yeah, it's it just I think it's just until something drastic changes, I don't see this. I mean, there may be you may be covering gaming for the independent and replacing me at some point, but and that, it'll still be going on. I have no idea, Joey. It's, it's just a, nobody seems to have an end game for this for this dispute. I guess my last question to wrap up is just: Are there any other kind of disputes that the union is is dealing with right now in Las Vegas to get contracts with other smaller uh, uh, areas, or is this kind of their main focus at the moment? This is probably their main focus. I think the union the contract with the strip and downtown casinos doesn't expire until twenty twenty three. So we've got a few years there. I think they'll look at what happens with the sale of the Sands properties here. I mean, that is the, those, those are probably the largest non-union properties on the Strip. They did get an agreement for do a contract with Resorts World. So they'll, Resorts will move forward. When the sale finally goes through the Sands properties and you have a new management company operating, that might be the, the next step we'll see. That's kind of a wait and see. Mm-hmm. I think right now the focus will be on the station casinos properties. They've got some hearings going on, some cases going on that are working their way through both the federal 
court system and the National Labor Relations Board stations is trying to get approval to build a Durango station, their new property on the southwest Las Vegas. It's an underserved area. They've had this land for years, this site, but started it back in 2008, came up with the idea of Durango Station, but stopped it during the recession. And when the company went through their bankruptcy reorganization, the question being, and, and the money question that was, how do you open a new casino when you still have three casinos that are not open? Station Casinos has not given an inclination that they're going to reopen the two Fiesta properties in Henderson and North Las Vegas and the Texas Station in North Las Vegas. The Palms, we know, has been sold. That's not going to reopen until the San Manuel Indian tribe is licensed to, to operate it. So at this point, that's what the focus is really is for the culinary now, and, and they're going to keep keep the pressure on. It's kind of heated up again, and we'll, and we'll see where this goes as we go down the road here. If you want to read more of Howard's story on the history of the dispute, you can find that on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Tanil Pereira, Robert Fielden, Darian Pollard, and Howard Stutz for being on the show this week. We'd also like to thank assistant editor Michelle Rindels and Riley Snyder, a dynamic duo who not only help us edit this podcast, but also help edit the monthly newsletter, Soundcheck which features extended interviews from the podcast and more. If you want to help the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen and email us with questions, comments, concerns, baby names for feral hogs, clock greasing techniques, or whatever else you can think of at joey at the or jacob at the Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Lance Conrad and original music from Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.